0: Sentire media.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to A History of Italy. Mm -hmm. Episode 32 Saxons to Salians and Fake News Legends. First of all, I would like to apologise for the shifting release schedule. Fortunately, or unfortunately, work is in full swing. There's plenty of work, but that means less time for podcasting. So you may have noticed that the release schedule, which started off on a Wednesday, has slid down to the weekend and now is sort of sliding slowly back to Wednesday again. So I hope you don't get too confused by that. Anyway, we ended up last episode in 10.24 with both the Holy Roman Emperor Henry II and Pope Benedict VIII dying and leaving two pretty big chairs vacant. Henry II had died on the 13th of July, 1024, and his successor wasn't crowned until September of that same year. Meanwhile, as soon as news of Henry's death reached Pavia, the ancient Lombard capital, and the location in which the kings of Italy were crowned, the inhabitants rebelled. They stormed the city palace to confront the imperial representatives. They soon discovered that there were no imperial representatives there and so they decided that it would be a good idea to burn the palace down. Unfortunately, the palace was that of Theodoric the Great, which by that time was almost 500 years old and was thus lost to history. Luckily we still have his mausoleum, just outside Ravenna, which you can still go and visit. Back in Germany, Henry II had died without leaving an heir. This was the end of the Ottonians. We did enjoy spending time with them, and we will miss them. While the German nobles tried to sort things out, every day management was left in the hands of the Empress Cunegunda, and in the end, it was Conrad of Franconia who became king. He was also known as the Salian. Indeed, it was he who started the Franconian or Salian dynasty. Now, while Pavia rebelled against imperial authority, Milan, in the person of Bishop Ariberto Aribert, and Leo of the city of Vercelli, offered the crown of the Kingdom of Italy to Conrad it was time to check the boxes of the Become a Holy Roman Emperor checklist. Remember that? To become a Holy Roman Emperor, you have to first become King of Germany, then King of the Kingdom of Italy, which was only Northern Italy and not all of Italy, then you'd have to go down to Rome and get yourself crowned Emperor. So, here were a couple of Italians offering him point two on the checklist. So, why not head down? He would get crowned King of Italy and then waltz down to Rome to officially become Holy Roman Emperor. So, in 1026, head down he did. The descent of Conrad into Italy is a good example of the tumultuous situation in which the country now found itself. So, Pavia, where he was supposed to be crowned, closed its gates to him, and he was forced to lay siege to the city. Meanwhile, he was welcomed in Milan with open arms, and it was there that he was crowned king of Italy. From there, he headed with his army to Ravenna, where the peasants attacked his soldiers, and the emperor himself had to intervene to avoid a massacre. Next, on the way to Rome, his army had to pass through Tuscany. Instead of letting Conrad pass, Marcus Ranieri of Tuscany closed himself inside the walls of Lucca, so Conrad had to sort him out too. I mean, where were things coming to? A poor old king of Germany and Italy couldn't just pop down to Rome for a little emperor crowning without having to go through all this hassle, I ask you. Incidentally, if you're a big Rex Factor fan like I am, you may remember that the king of England, William Rufus, used to swear by the holy face of Lucca. Well, this is the city where they had the Jesus, the wooden Jesus, which the king would swear by. Otherwise, if you're a big Comic-Con fan, there is a good one there called Lucca Comics, which you can visit every year at the end of October. Things didn't go much better when Conrad finally got to Rome. There, the Romans attacked the incoming imperial troops. The rebellion was repressed and, as tradition dictated, the leaders of said rebellion were decapitated and their bodies thrown in the Tiber. Finally, after all that messing around, Conrad the Salian finally got his imperial crown in 1027. From the Pope. Aha, I hear you say. You have forgotten to tell us who the Pope was now. After all, hadn't Benedict VIII died in 1024? Very attentive of you. Good job, everyone. Well, you'll never guess what name the next Pope took. Go on, try, guess. It was... John. Surprised? John the nineteenth. He was another Tuscolo man, the powerful family, who had now influenced Roman politics for over a century. He was the brother of the previous Pope, and had, in quick succession, been ordained a priest, and then a bishop by his bro. Speaking of bishops, Conrad had a bit of a tough time with another one of those. You may remember from the beginning of the episode that Aribert of Milan was one of the two men who had invited Conrad down to take the Italian crown. Not only that, but when Conrad in 1034 needed help against the Burgundians, Aribert, peaceful man of God that he was, led a military expedition up to aid his emperor. However, these great buddies soon had a falling out, and this is why. In the year 1035 there was a rebellion in Milan. The minor vassals had begun to grow very worried about the growing civil power of Archbishop Aribert and their patience had reached its end. Aribert and the higher nobles were quickly able to send the rebels fleeing from the city but they soon regrouped and made alliances with the anti-Aribert forces in the area particularly Serpio Martesana, Pavia and Lodi. The two armies met at the Battle of Campo Malo in 1036. The battle was not just one of minor vassals against Aribert and the major nobles, but of the cities around Milan against the expansion of Milan herself. The outcome of the battle wasn't really heavily in favour of either side, but An important ally of Aribert, Alric, Bishop of Asti, was killed, which sort of scored a point in favour of the rebellion. At this point, Emperor Conrad decided things were getting a little bit out of hand, and so made his way down. He sat everybody down, heard all sides, and decided that it was the Archbishop of Milan himself, Aribert, who was at fault. Conrad imprisoned him near the city of Piacenza. Now, you would imagine that the naughty Archbishop spent the rest of his days rotting in a prison. Well, no. About a month later, he was able to escape and make his way back to Milan. Conrad followed him and laid siege to the city. I suppose one would imagine at this point that Arabert would have had a rather awkward return, but... It was one thing for the Milanese to whack each other round the heads with swords, but when a foreign emperor came down and decided to imprison their bishop, well, that just wasn't cricket. No, sir. It was at this point that the citizens of Milan rallied around Aribert, and he gave them a rallying point. This is where the bishop pulled out the Carroccio. That's C A. Double R, O, double C, I, O. Now this word probably won't mean much to the majority of international listeners. But if you've lived in Italy in the last 30 years, it is very meaningful. What is this carroccio? Knowing us Italians, you may be thinking it's some obscure and inventive recipe for pasta. It's not. It's a cart, or you could say a wagon, or if you want to make it sound cool, you could say it is A war Altar The Carrocci started out their existence with the Lombards who used them as a war wagon either riding them into battle like a sort of chariot or using it for transport purposes In time, and in particular in the later Middle Ages so after the time we're talking about it became gradually more symbolic It would hold a cross and an altar and the municipal insignia that of the city and later commune it would be surrounded by elite troops to protect it and its importance was a bit like that of the eagle of the roman legions or the american flag for the u.s troops it would be kept in the main cathedral of the city and carted out in times of danger to be used as a rallying point as in the case of our good friend aribert archbishop of milan when the city was under siege by Conrad. The Milanese were able to resist, and the Carroccio became an important symbol of municipal independence. At this point you may be wondering what reflection a wagon, from around a thousand years ago, would have on modern day Italy in the last 30 years. Well, there are two important elements in this story. One was the fact that the Italian municipality was resisting an invasion by a foreigner, and the other was that the municipality in question was a northern one. Indeed, the use of the Carroccio was characteristic in particular of the municipalities of northern Italy, where, as we have had more than one opportunity to see, history developed a lot differently from in the centre and the south. Now these two themes, resistance to foreign intruders and superiority of the North, were very dear to the political party which was formed in Italy between the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s in the last century, the Lega Nord, the Northern League. I have spoken about the Lega before in Special Episode 1, in which I did an analysis of the Italian election. The Italian press have a nickname for the party, which is and here we finally get back to the point of my rambling, the Carroccio. Now, the particular Carroccio that was attached to the symbolism of the Lega was not that of Bishop Aribert, but one that came up sometime later, when the original Lombard League fought against Emperor Frederick Barbarossa and was led by a man who, confusingly, was also called Aribert. This one was Ariberto di Guisano, while the bishop we are talking about is Ariberto di Intimiano. So, let's stop a sec and take a look at the symbolism here. We have the League, which once was the Northern League that used the image of Aribert of Guisano, who was supposed to have helped the Lombard League of Communes fight the mighty Emperor Barbarossa. Unfortunately, this guy probably never actually existed. No matter, we have the other Aribert, the one who we're talking about, the Archbishop of Milan, who started the whole Carroccio business in the first place. Couldn't he be the symbol of a noble northern Italian identity, fighting off the foreign invaders to preserve the freedom of the Italian citizens? Well, not really... First of all, Aribert was of Lombard origin, so a German, and we have seen he wasn't in the least bit interested in the freedom of the citizens, but in consolidating his power. You could say that we are in the presence of a fake news legend. If we want to be a bit naughty, we could say that the Carroccio was a symbol that helped a rich Milanese man stay out of prison. A bit like when the Northern League di Carroccio, supported Silvio Berlusconi in his first government in 1994, and allowed him to start making laws that, by pure chance of course, allowed Berlusconi to simply legislate some of the crimes he was accused of out of existence. Anyway, we have a bit to go before getting there, back to the 11th century. The important thing to take away from all this was that Conrad did not get his man it didn't even help that the new Pope, Benedict IX, who had substituted John 19th in 1032, weighed in on the side of the Emperor and actually excommunicated Archbishop Aribert. In the end, he held on, and although it didn't make a huge amount of difference, Holy Roman Emperor Conrad was defeated, or at least dissuaded. We could say that we now have the emperor licking his wounds over the Arabert business but it's not a mortal wound it's a graze more annoying than painful. Indeed he had reached a pretty good balance in Italy. The Byzantines were laying low and in the south he had an alliance with Guaimar IV of Salerno who was also granted Capua and Gaeta. He had a friendly pope in Rome and he had the old friend of the empire, Bonifacio of Canossa, in the north. The Canossa became even more powerful under Conrad. Indeed, you will remember at the beginning of the episode that when Conrad descended into Italy, he had various different reactions, among which was that of the rebellious Marquis Ranieri of Tuscany, whose lands the emperor then took away and gave to his pal Bonifacio of Canossa. Now, with the addition of Tuscany to their holdings, the Canossa were looking at a pretty juicy bit of real estate. Bonifacio had inherited Modena, Mantova, Reggio Emilia, Ferrara and Brescia. His wife, Rachilde, bought him Cremona and Verona and now he added Tuscany to the mix. This meant that the family, controlled from the borders of Rome, to Comacchio, all the way up in the northeast near the Adriatic Sea. This also meant that the family had control of the Po River, which, in a period when Roman roads were no longer usable, was a very important means of transporting goods. The Canossa, and Bonifacio in particular, was playing a clever game. He knew that Conrad needed him, and he milked that cow for all it was worth. Conrad, to try and bring the rebellious Milanese minor vassals over to his side, in 1037 issued the Constitutio de Feudis. This document, whisked out quickly to help end a siege, had a dramatic and lasting effect on Italian society. It granted a series of rights to minor nobles, in particular allowing the sons to inherit the lands that would otherwise have gone back to the overlords, thus greatly reducing the latter's power and influence. We'll leave things up north in that balance for now. In the next episode, we're heading south again, where things are about to change pretty quickly and pretty drastically. That's because the Normans are coming. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters I've recently sorted them out into levels and one supporter, Roberta, has quite rightly asked where she can have access to what the different levels mean Well, unfortunately, at the moment I haven't really thought everything through It's just an idea I was kicking around So, for the moment, we have Garibaldi level, Preston, Roberta, Sean and Jeff Mazzini level, Benjamin Galileo level Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay and Shelby and Dante level Sen Hopefully soon I'll be able to mould those levels into something actually meaningful Thanks to everyone who has got in touch through various media, email, Facebook and in particular the new tweets from Twitter which have also helped me discover a new podcast which is Pontifax in which you have a sort of rex factor approach to the popes. So considering all the holes I'm leaving behind with the various popes, I'm really looking forward to when the girls get round to the post-imperial period and we can go hand in hand and head into Italian history. Remember that you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com At that same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media or you can have a look at our timeline maps and other useful information to navigate our complicated history once again thanks very much to everyone and until next time arrivederci